Please take your Bibles and turn to back to the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 7. John chapter 7, as we work through this uh, wonderful gospel, we'll be picking up uh, this morning uh, in verse 14, and we'll be reading and looking at uh, verses 14 to 24. Verse 14 to 24. We have reached this uh, kind of a transition in John's gospel where the opposition uh, to our Lord is beginning to increase, um, and so we... Uh, looked at that rumbling underneath last week, and so now we pick up in verse 14 uh, with Jesus uh, going to the feast and into the temple. Hear the word of the Lord, verse 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but, is, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. And this concludes the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that we could uh, really uh, look at it this morning and, and uh, seek to understand by your spirit what is... Uh, what we're being taught and what John the evangelist is pointing us to. And so in this passage, Lord, we pray uh, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. I pray that you would enable me to speak uh, the truth uh, according to your word. Uh, prevent me, Father, from um, going astray on, and leaning on my own wisdom or my own understanding, but help me to be faithful, a faithful steward of your word so that your people so that each of us might be strengthened and built up and pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, for Lord Jesus, it is in your name that we pray. Amen. So like I said, we reached this uh, boiling point of hostility toward Jesus. We saw that in verses 1 to 13. Uh, this divide between true disciples and false disciples, between those who believe in Jesus and those who don't is growing more and more evident as we start to go through the Gospel of John and as we come to chapter 7. Um, the more Jesus declares and manifests himself to be the Messiah, this is what we're seeing, the, uh, the more he reveals the hearts of men, as we saw last week, uh, really saying um, 
you know, the world hates me because I reveal its sin to them. To them. Uh, so the more that that's revealed, the more Jesus says he's the Messiah, the greater and the more public this opposition becomes. And so when we come to verse 14 here, we, we see Jesus enter the temple and he ends up going up during the middle of the Feast of Booths and he begins teaching the people. And so Jesus is going to teach the people here at the temple um, for the next few days until ultimately he's going to leave uh, the temple on the last day of the feast all the way down into chapter 8 verse 59. So when Jesus enters the temple here in the middle of the feast, uh, what we're reading in John actually takes us all the way to the end of the feast a couple days later where Jesus is still teaching in the temple and ends up leaving. And so you'll notice in the gospel there's a, a brief interlude there in chapter 7 verse 53. Uh, all the way to John chapter 8, verse 11. And, and if you have the ESV version or whatever uh, version you're using, you might see uh, some parentheses around 7.53 and, uh, or block off. And also on chapter 8, verse 11, that whole interlude, that section. We'll talk about that section uh, when, when we get to it. But just wanted to point out it, it, it's a little out of place and... The reason I bring it up now is because I want you to understand the flow of this passage in what I think is in the original manuscript, um, because if you actually read from chapter 7, verse 1 to 52, verse 52, and you skip that interlude, and you pick up reading in chapter 8, verse 12 to the end of the chapter, you'll actually see that the unit actually flows together. It's more cohesive. And you'll see that John, his point is emphasizing this growing public opposition toward Jesus. And that little section just seems a little, a little out, of, out of place. And so in this entire section, minus the interlude, you, you see things like Jesus is under the threat of death in chapter 7, verse 1. Jesus is accused of leading people astray, verse 12 of chapter 7. Jesus is said to have a demon. Uh, Jesus is under the threat of arrest. Jesus is called a liar in chapter 8, verse 13. Jesus, at the very end, is almost stoned to death at the end of uh, the Feast of the Booths as he leaves the temple at the very end in chapter 8, verse 59. And so this opposition is growing public. People are becoming more and more angry with Jesus, and their hatred toward Jesus our Lord is growing, and it's ultimately going to culminate in his crucifixion. And the crucifixion, of course, is exactly why Jesus came. The promised Messiah, the Son of God, came to suffer and die on the cross for the sins of his people so that he might redeem them for himself. And that's why Jesus, as he's facing this opposition, is not becoming deterred by the opposition he's facing, but Jesus continues to make himself known and to confront unbelievers with his claims and promises this is God's will for Jesus, and so Jesus is not deterred by those who would seek to undermine the mission that God sent him on and for which he himself came. 
He came into the world to redeem a people for himself. Now, that's his mission. That's why God called him, sent him into the world, and Jesus willingly came to die for sinners. And God's will for you and I, beloved, is that we what? That we believe in him and so be saved. So that opposition doesn't prevent him because he wants you to believe in him. He fearlessly, lovingly told the world about his identity and mission so that we might be saved. And we should be thankful for that, for our resolve of our Lord to go to the cross. In fact, John 15, 3, 15, 13 says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And I say this to you this morning as we look at this growing opposition here, because I want you to remember this morning Jesus' resolve for you and me, beloved. That he was opposed by the world, he was hated by the world, he was rejected by the world to the point where he was crucified on a cross by the world that he created according to God's will, and he was resolved to do it for our redemption. And that should lift our hearts to praise when you ponder and think about Jesus and his resolve. Think about that resolve he demonstrated to go to the cross because of his love for you, specifically who have believed on him. So, verse 14 to 39, we will see only the first two points this morning. We will see how Jesus confronts the world with his sovereign knowledge, which is also what they're opposing. That's 14 to 20. And then Jesus is going to confront the world again with a miracle that he did earlier, and that's verses 21 to 24, a miraculous sign. So Jesus, as opposition grows, they're opposing him for his knowledge, 14 to 20, and they're opposing him for the signs that he does, 21 to 24. And then we'll see next week his heavenly origin, 25 to 36, and then, of course, his offer of salvation in 37 to 39. So John picks up here as Jesus now is, goes into the middle of the feast, and he says he goes into the temple to teach, and as he's teaching, John says, the Jews therefore marveled at his teaching, saying, and they're saying this to one another, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? That's a, good, that's a good question. Jesus had this miraculous handle of God's word. He, he was able to explain it and expound on it. He was able to uh, teach it in a way that, that was very different from what they had heard from their own scribes and Pharisees. Um, he's teaching from God's word, and we don't know what passage he is teaching at this point, but he opens it, and he opens it to them, and he's teaching, and the people, 
that are hearing him teach Jewish leaders and common Jews alike at the temple, they are amazed that this man without any formal training is teaching. How could one not trained in their universities, how could one not trained in the rabbinical schools that they maybe had led by the Pharisees and the Sadducees? You remember the Apostle Paul? Uh, who did he study under? He studied under the teacher Gamaliel. He was this famous teacher. So they had these famous scholars. They had these famous teachers, just like we do in our own universities. And here is Jesus without this PhD in religious studies, and he's displaying this masterful understanding and, ha and displaying such authority and such clarity that they are ac actually amazed. It was as if Jesus, as he's teaching them, was teaching them from an understanding of his own, and his teaching carried a weight of its own. So maybe you understand that when you read God's word. In fact, when you read God's word, a lot of Bibles have uh, Jesus's words in red, right? Um, all of the scripture is God's word. And when you read God's word and you read the scripture, if you're in Christ, you understand that there is an authority that is inherent in the word of God. There is an authority that comes from God's word that really, when spoken and manifested, begins to convict the people of their sin. This is what the Holy Spirit does with his word. And this is why the world hates God, because it rejects God's word. And so they're hearing Jesus. There's something very powerful about the words that he is speaking. And the early disciples had that same effect. If you look at Acts chapter 4, verse 13, when the blessing of the Holy Spirit comes that Jesus promised, that it would lead them into all truth, Peter and John are confronted by the religious authorities of their own day. Uh, with, they're confronted with their own understanding of the scriptures, and we are told that they see the boldness of Peter of John, and what they perceived is that these were uneducated common men and they were astonished and they recognized something very specific about Peter and John. Do you remember what they recognized? They recognized that these men had been with Jesus. And so this authority, this authority of Jesus is carrying on even into his disciples. And so Jesus responds to their confusion and their marveling and he says, basically, what I am doing is teaching exactly what God the Father says. He says, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. And so, unlike teachers who teach based off of what others have said and quoting them and trying to substantiate their own claims with the authority of other recognized teachers, Jesus does not appeal to a higher authority or precedent or tradition. When I teach something, or some of you are teachers, when you teach something, you generally teach something that you have studied and you're studying what other men have written 
And when you're teaching it, you're relying on a certain knowledge or understanding that has come from the past to so, sort of substantiate what you're doing. We, we should put quotes and we should let people know that this is where we learned this. This is where we came to our understanding. And this is why we believe what we believe. And really, there's a whole consensus and precedent about what we're saying. We're not coming out of left field, right? We're not just kind of making up our own thing here, but, but this is the basis for why we teach it. Paul, you would know too as a physicist, right? When you studied things and you did things, you had to quote and show your work and where is it coming from, right? And a lot of you in, in your work. And here Jesus, Jesus, what they see in him is that Jesus is not appealing to a higher authority that is separate from himself. He does say what I'm teaching is the Father's, but his point is not that him and the Father are, um, are on different planes and Jesus is just this recipient from the Father, but he's saying what I say is what God the Father says because I and the Father are, are one, right? That what Jesus says is exactly what God the, the Father says. My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. So Jesus himself is the authority over all that he is saying, and he relies on no one for his understanding because his understanding, his teaching belongs to God. His teaching consists of the exact words of God. Jesus is not approaching God's word as someone from the outside looking in, but Jesus is speaking as one who is himself God with the authority of God, and so he need not appeal to other men to substantiate his words. Different than the Old Testament prophets. Do you remember the Old Testament prophets who came before Jesus, even John the Baptist? They would claim, uh, Old Testament prophet, if you read, they would claim what? Thus says the Lord. So they would receive a message from God, and God would call them and send them to proclaim his word. And so the prophets would go out into the world, and they would say rightly, thus says the Lord. Here is the word of the Lord for you, acknowledging that their teaching was not their own, but came from God. But Jesus is claiming something more, and this is clear throughout the gospel. Because when you see the gospels, Jesus, even in in the Sermon on the Mount, you could see it, but you could see it in other places. What does Jesus say? Does he say, thus says the Lord? But what does Jesus say? I say to you. Jesus doesn't say, thus says the Lord. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, and then he says what he wants to say, because what Jesus says is true. What Jesus says is perfectly what God speaks every time, and so he speaks God's word. I mean, and that kind of, when I thought about that, I thought, this is amazing. Like, I say lots of things all the time and talk a lot of things, and, and I, I say things, but the only time I'm actually actually speaking God's word is actually when I'm reading it. 
Does that make sense? So only when I read God's word out loud is it actually God's word that's being spoken. Every word that Jesus spoke was God's word. Every and he spoke, every, every uh, conjunction he spoke, every, every verb he spoke, every participle he spoke, every single thing, every time Jesus uttered a word, it was the word of God. And, and so this is what he is telling them. And so Jesus says in John 8, 28, for example, he says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. John 12, 49 to 50. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has Himself given me a commandment what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. What he just said there is exactly what the Father had told him. Does that right? It is the word of God. Jesus does everything that the Father does. And therefore, Jesus only speaks the truth. He only speaks God's word because he himself is very God of very God. And so one of the challenges that we face in our day of people trying to find out what is truth, this is a common complaint among many in our own day, especially with the flood of the internet and, and everyone's asking, how do I know what's true? How do I know what's not a deep fake? How do I know if this is a lie? Maybe we need a truth commission. Maybe we need a governing board that's able to discern for us what is true and what is, what is not true. I mean, even that came out even in our own government recently, right? It was proposed to have a, a board of governance over truth. And like in 1984, the book, we need a ministry of truth because we need some way to discern what is real and what is not real. And so what happens is a lot of people in the midst of all of this kind of confusion, their answer to that confusion is to say, well, I'm just agnostic and I don't know and I'm comfortable with it. And people tend to say that about the truth of God's word and the truth of Jesus and who he is. They'll say, you know what, because so many people are saying so many different things about Jesus and I can't make sense of all of this stuff. I'm just going to be agnostic toward it and I'm going to say, I don't know, and I'm just going to leave it at that. And then they think that they're wise. They think they're wise because they're taking this higher ground. But in reality, they're, they're not wise. They're not, being, they're not being more intelligent than other people. They're actually just closing themselves off to, to finding out the truth. And it's a way of hardening one's heart to the truth, not softening it. And so it may make them feel better by just saying, I don't know, and feed their pride but in doing that, they will never come to a knowledge of the truth, and they will never come to believe in Jesus as their Savior. The main problem with that kind of thinking about truth is, of course, that truth itself 
does not depend on what you or I determine to be true or not. I'll say that again. Truth does not depend on what you, is not determined by what you or I think is true. I didn't say it exactly like I wanted to. Um, in other, it's another way to say truth is not subjective and truth is not relative. Now, you, you children that are in school now and even, even in elementary school and on into high school and you're going into college, let me just give you a fair warning that when you go into your academic fields of study, you are entering into a field of study where people and teachers and professors do not believe in an absolute truth. You're going into a, a place to be educated by individuals, not, maybe not all of them, but for most of them, that do not believe in absolute truths, and they will seek to undermine that in every way that they can. And you, beloved, you need to stand firm on the fact that there is definite objective truth in the world. You must realize that there is an objective truth, and Christ calls you to believe that truth. And so Jesus here, he is himself truth, and he's speaking truth. And so how does one then know whether what Jesus is saying is true? That's the question, right? How do you know whether or not what Jesus is saying is true? Jesus' answer is this. If they believed in Jesus as the Messiah, then they wouldn't be wondering about the source of his knowledge and whether it is true. But they would believe his words because... As the Messiah, the Son of God, truth abides in him. He, it sounds circular, but it's not. He himself is the way, the truth, and the life. And so Jesus turns the discussion toward their need for faith in him. He, he says in verse 17, If anyone's will is to do God's will... He will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. So he's not saying that you must do a whole bunch of good works before you know whether or not what I'm saying is from God. He's not saying that. He's saying, but the one who wants to know whether or not what I'm saying is of God must be committed to do God's will. And what did Jesus say is the will of God for you, the work of God for you back in John 5, 39? What did he say? I just said it at the introduction. What did he say it is? He said, it is that you believe in me. 
It's that you believe in Jesus as the Messiah. And so Jesus is saying, until you come to understand that I am the Messiah, the Son of God, the promised one who came into the world from the Father to bring redemption for my people, until you understand who I am, you will never understand that what I am saying to you is the authority of God's word, the very word of God. It, it is a call to faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's what he means when he says, if anyone's will, if anyone's desire is to do God's will, that is a way of saying, if anyone is believing in me, obeying my word, hearing my commandments, if that's your desire to obey God in everything, including faith in me, then you will know that what I am teaching is from God. And it's not based off of my own ideas or authority. Jesus is saying, I am not like the false teachers or false prophets that have come before you. I am not like the teachers here in this temple who are before you. I am not seeking my own glory, but I'm seeking the glory of God the Father. Ezekiel describes in the Old Testament um, the false prophets and what they looked for in their own day and how they are different than Jesus. In Ezekiel 34, verse 2 to 3, Ezekiel said, is told, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. And the New Testament repeatedly describes false teachers as those who are slaves to their own appetites, who go after financial gain, and they go after the praise of men. And Jesus is saying, I am not like those false shepherds and false teachers. Jesus is saying, I have come in, in humility to speak the truth to you, to seek the glory of God the Father and to do the Father's will. And he will do the Father's will even if it means that you reject him. Jesus is not a charlatan. Jesus is not after financial gain. He's not after your pocketbook. He's not after your money. Jesus is the Messiah who has come to redeem you. D.A. Carson puts it like this. Jesus is neither a religious charlatan nor a respected religious leader with inev inevitably mixed motives. He is as trustworthy as his motives are unmixed. If Jesus were simply trying to persuade others to his views, he would seek whatever means seemed most effective. But he doesn't do that. Jesus speaks the truth. 
And so you are to believe in Jesus as the Son of God. And so Jesus' point is, listen, I have given you and revealed these things to you about myself from God's word, believing in him and obeying his word. If you do that and you listen and respond by faith, God will give you more understanding. And of course, that's what he does by the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2, 10 to 15 says, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God, for who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. In other words, the Spirit of God that Jesus gave is the Spirit of God that leads us into truth. And here Jesus is just telling them, place your faith in me and you will know the truth and the authority with which I speak. Now they, of course, didn't have that kind of faith or the obedience that goes with it. And so Jesus brings up Moses and the law, and he asks them a rhetorical question. This is where you see it back in John 7. He says, has not Moses given you the law? And that's just a way to make a statement. He's saying Moses indeed is giving you the law. And of course, the answer is yes, he has. And so Jesus is reminding them that God's will comes from God's law, and it serves to set the stage for the fact that they themselves do not do God's will. They have the law. Moses gave them the law. They delight in the law, but none of them keeps the law, Jesus says. So Jesus points to the fact that he is well aware that they are trying to kill him, which is itself a violation of God's law. In other words, you do not know whether my teaching is from God because you do not desire to do God's will because your desire is not to do God's will but to murder me, which is a violation of Exodus 20.13. He says, I know you want to murder me, an innocent man, because I am proclaiming the truth about myself to you and my knowledge of you is so deep that I know that you even want to kill me and they say to him, and Jesus says to them, why do you seek to kill me? And their response to Jesus and his sovereign knowledge of them is their response to Jesus is, you have a demon. Who wants to kill you? Jesus confronts the world with his knowledge he says it's divine, it's of God, it's the very word of God. And I'm calling you to believe on me for your salvation. 
and the world says to Jesus' knowledge and understanding, you have a demon. That right there is the hardness of man's heart that ultimately leads men to reject Jesus to such a point that they hang him on a cross. The Lord of glory, they put a crown of thorns on his head and mock him as king. They fashion whips in their hands and putting rocks and things inside of it and they whip him. And then they fasten him onto the cross and they stab him on the side and they mock him saying, King, O King, save yourself. Why? Because Jesus speaks the truth. And Jesus is speaking the truth to you and I this morning. And he is confronting us with who he is and with his word. And he is calling each of us to respond to him for who he is and for salvation. These people thought about Jesus and they basically thought that he was a raving madman. They thought that Jesus was paranoid maybe. They thought that Jesus was suffering from delusions of grandeur. They thought that Jesus was insane to make such a claim. And it hurts our pride when our hearts are revealed just as their hearts were revealed. And many respond in similar ways when God's word cuts to their heart. Not all of these people ultimately wanted Jesus dead, but the religious leaders did. And eventually, all of those who were present there at the temple listening to Jesus' words would ultimately cry out with their leaders, crucify him crucify him. Was Jesus right about them? He was right. Jesus was exactly right. You seek to kill me, calling me a lawbreaker, and yet who is it that is ultimately a lawbreaker? In this room, who is the lawbreaker? Me and you. If you don't think you're a lawbreaker, you don't know your place before a holy God. We are the lawbreakers. Jesus is the law keeper. We are the angry ones toward God. Jesus is God's love manifested. We are the ones who are running away from God. God in the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who has come to save you. You see, when it comes down to it, Jesus is simply presenting himself to them. And he's saying... I have come to offer myself to you and to speak the truth. And rather than receiving 
my offer of salvation, rather than receiving me as your Savior, your response is to call me a demon. Their response in opposition to Jesus, and we'll end with this when we come to the Lord's table. We won't get to the next point. Their response in opposition to Jesus' knowledge and his teaching and his healings, it really brings to mind an argument that uh, the late C.S. Lewis made, and you probably know the argument well. And uh, it says that there are only three possible responses to Jesus and his claims. Summarizing, and I'll read what he said, but summarizing it, you might have heard it summarized like this. Either Jesus is a liar, or he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. In other words, when you hear Jesus, and you see Jesus in the scriptures, and you look at his life, and you hear his teaching, we talked about this last week from, remember, summarizing the Sermon on the Mount. You can't look at it any other way. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg. I love that English humor. Or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we marvel at your word and at your teaching. We can only ponder and think what those who saw you and listened with their physical ears to what you were saying and witnessed your miracles and signs, we can only imagine what they must have seen and, and witnessed. But we know, O oh God, by your Spirit, that the truth that we now read and learn about you from your Word is indeed the very Word of God. And that you spoke these truths so that we might be saved and redeemed. Every word that you spoke, Lord Jesus, was perfect. Every act that you did in life was perfect and holy. Everything that you thought, 
Everything that you looked at was looked at with pure motives. Everything you touched was touched with pure motives. Everything that you consumed from the earth was consumed with a right heart and right motives. There was no sin that was found in you. There was no sin that could cling to you as it clings to us. We are, at the end of the day, Lord Jesus, dirty. And we are sinners and we carry along this flesh with us. And we find our minds and our hearts often wandering away from you, Lord Jesus, rebelling against your word and your teaching and turning our hearts against you. And, and we even find that sometimes that flesh rises up within us and we want to cry out with those who crucified you, crucify him. And then we find ourselves so ashamed of the fact that we would even think such a thought. We find ourselves as your children ashamed that we should ever doubt your word and, and consider you to be unfaithful. We find ourselves seeking your forgiveness forever, believing that your word would fall short of what you have committed it to accomplish. We know, O oh God, that we are a weak and a needy people and that we need a savior because we cannot save ourselves. We know, O oh God, that we live in a world that hates you, and it's a world that we too were a part of. And we know that we at one time lived against you, but you have shown us mercy and kindness, and you have given us a faith to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. And we thank you for doing that. And we thank you for drawing us to your table and we thank you for blessing us with the bread and the wine that you have given to us as a remembrance of the fact that you, Lord Jesus, laid down your life and gave yourself and shed your blood for the forgiveness of our sins. We are lawbreakers, but you are, Lord Jesus, the law keeper, the faithful Savior, the loving God, the merciful Redeemer, in whose name we pray. Amen.